1: you listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, January 11th, 2008. This week, episode 64 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, PA. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, and the Wingman, Chris Boisel. afternoon, gentlemen. Hello. Good day, Chris. All right. First, let's remind our listeners to check out our website, www.iaqradio.com. You can also email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, if you need those IAQ Council credits to renew your certification. We'll uh, email you a quiz after the show, and you can answer the questions, send it back to us, and get those credits. Today's segments include the Microband Trivia Quiz, Sharon Kramer, Activist and Advocate, and IE Connections, What's News with Glenn Feldman? and last but not least, we'll have the roundup. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsors.
2: Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com.
3: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. DryEase products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged
2: homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at
3: dryease-eaz.com. And John Don products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at J-O-N-D-O-N com. Okay.
2: To contact the show, you just go to the TalkShoe website, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com, and our PIN number is 1547. We've got a nice group of listeners on right now, it looks like, and uh, we appreciate all of our listeners coming in. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's take it over to Cliff for the microband trivia quest.
3: Thanks, Joe. The microband trivia question for Friday, January 11, 2008, is a legal term. A form of litigation followed by organizations or individuals to intimidate and silence critics or opponents by burdening them with the cost of legal defense so that they abandon their criticism. Name the term or acronym. Back to you, Joe.
2: Okay. Thank you, Cliff. That was a Special special for Sharon here, right. I believe. And uh, Also, you can answer our trivia questions at the iaqradio.com website. We're back up and running. We've got quite a few available out there. And I think if uh, what do you say? we get more than three, we'll have a special special prize. Absolutely, custom. sure. Maybe, maybe an IAQ Radio shirt. You we never, never even know. know. Absolutely. We've got some hot new shirts in here. All right, let's get started. Today's guest, our
3: special guest, is Sharon Kramer. Here's what I say, and this is good philosophy. It seems like opposites are in conflict and we are in the middle. Evil on one side, good on the other side. Illness on one side, good health on the other side. Darkness on
1: one side, light on the other side. And they're in conflict. conflict. Today's guest, Sharon Kramer, activist, advocate. Sharon is a real estate agent by profession, but has been on sabbatical for the past 18 months. She's been concentrating on her advocacy work. In particular, she's been working to expose how what she claims are conflicts of interest and skilled, well-financed marketing techniques that have been used to defend against claims that mold contamination and damp buildings cause adverse health effects. She is well-suited to take on this cause, as she holds a BBA in marketing from the University of Minnesota, or Mississippi, excuse me, and has over 30 years in the field of experience of sales and marketing. Since 2003, Sharon has been researching and studying the marketing of what she claims is the false concept that it has been scientifically proven microbial poisons or toxins that are found in water-damaged buildings cannot plausibly cause symptoms indicative of poisoning. According to Sharon, this false concept of implausibility, widely marketed by influential medical associations, is not founded upon any accepted science. Much like the history of tobacco's issues, misinformation downplaying the severity of mold-induced illness has been propagated extensively within the medical communities and Within the courts. The intent of this misinformation is to deny proof of causation and financial liability for insurers and stakeholders of moldy buildings when occupants and workers become ill. Her research into the conflicts of interest over the matter was the foundation for a January 2007 front page Wall Street, Wall Street Journal article titled, Court of Opinion Amid Suits Over Mold Experts Wear Two Hats. Authors of science paper often cited by defense also help in litigation. She recently co-authored a paper published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, the International Journal of Occupational and Environmental Health, and Medscape, General Medscape. She also moderated a United States Senate staff briefing over this matter to assist in educating our government and has been instrumental in in pushing for a federal government accountability office GAO audit regarding the mold issue
3: welcome Sharon what was your inspiration or motivation for your consumer advocacy activity
4: well um, it started off with a I actually started off with a small leak in an ice maker line of a refrigerator and um, the uh, mold grew, my house was cross contaminated. It took me into a, a whole world, a whole other world of education. And um, there was so much mixed information out there, I had to do research on my own. And I found people who were experiencing um, the same things that my family was. No, you know, there were a lot of experts giving a lot of various expert opinions. And so um, that's that's how it started, with a personal experience. And um, and I, it took me to researching the conflicts of interest among medical associations that are causing a lot of the mixed information.
3: Yeah, but it seems like you're a dog on the trail of a rabbit. You know, where did you get the scent? What made you think that something didn't smell right there?
4: Well, um, I... I knew what we experienced, and I uh, ran into hundreds of people who were experiencing the same thing that we were going through. They were sick. They were not able to get medical treatment. Um, Their physicians were being told that anybody who claims they were sick from mold um, are just liars and whiners out to scam their insurers. And, you know, I knew that wasn't right. I went through it myself. So I have a, um, a degree in marketing, and, and I understand how concepts are marketed. So I started researching kind of backwards, okay, this is what's really going on out here. What is driving the misinformation? And um, where it took me to was the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. Um, they had put out a position statement in which they, did, they said that they were able to determine that um Inhaled mold toxins are not, uh, it's highly unlikely at best that they would cause illness in people. So I looked at that statement, and then I looked at what are the references for these statements. And I went back through, and there's 83 references for the uh, ACOM mold statement. Not one of them says that it's highly unlikely at best, even among the most vulnerable of subpopulations, that people will become ill from uh, mold toxins in an indoor environment. So I looked at the references for um, where that statement came from, and the only place that that came from were the authors of the ACOM paper themselves applying mathematical extrapolations to rodent studies to make that erroneous conclusion. And um, that's not science. uh, To quote from the Institute of Medicine Executive Summary, Toxicologic studies, which examine such responses using animal and cellular models, cannot be used by themselves to draw conclusions about human health effects. So that's where the concept originated.
2: Okay. And now let's go back a minute and and talk about uh, you sometimes discuss dose response theory, and you try to put it in layman's terms. And I, I want to... First, make sure that we make everyone aware. You don't claim to be a scientist, and um, you don't claim to be uh, an expert on these um, technical issues. But we would like to get your perspective on what the problems are with dose response theory and what Paracelsus said as far as the dose making the poison. Okay.
4: What would you like to know?
2: Well, where do you feel this Dose response theory was misused, I guess, is the best best thing to say.
4: Well, you know, basically in layman terms, you can't take a rat study, add some math, and conclude that people are not sick from the toxins that are found in water-damaged buildings. And the reason you can't do that, a, a, a um, like a linear dose response theory, doesn't apply here because there are too many variables occurring simultaneously within water-damaged buildings. And people aren't exposed to just one contaminant at a time, and um, they're being exposed for varying periods of time. That you can't uh, control those require you can't satisfy those requirements accurately when you're doing just a applying mathematical extrapolations to rodent studies, Um, and so that's why uh, a traditional dose response theory doesn't apply to being able to determine that humans are not being made ill from the poisons that some molds produce.
3: What about the opposite, though, Sharon, where a rat study is being used to prove that this is toxic to rats, this does kill rats, and therefore this is toxic to humans?
4: Well, I don't know that there are any rat studies that Specifically, just you know, myopically on one uh, based on one set of data that conclude uh, this is toxic to humans. Typically, rat studies are used to determine uh, routes of exposure and and health effects from exposure, but they don't really establish the dose that's required before humans become ill.
0: I think it
3: depends what they're testing. I wasn't the question that I asked you deals primarily from. The chemical side, you know, oftentimes they do studies with rats, and they determine what are called LD50s, lethal dose, to kill fifty percent of the subject rats. And they expose them to chemicals orally. You know, they force feed them chemicals. You know, these are these terrible animal studies that activists are, are against. You know, they force them to inhale quantities. Um, they put it on their skin. They put it in their eyes, and, and so on and so forth. And then they keep upping the ante until they kill 50% of the rats, and then it ends up being so much product per, uh, you know, kilograms per kilogram of weight. And then they kind of compare one chemical versus another, and they say that one thing is more toxic than the other. So I was just trying to ask whether or not the reverse opinion of what you said would, you know, whether you would consider that valid.
4: Right, uh, yeah, I think um rodent studies are very important to moving the science forward, and what you're what you're talking about is um quantitative risk assessment, as I understand it, and what that's actually used for you know we have so many chemicals in our environment today that you have to set a standard of what people can be exposed to and what they can't be exposed to, and it's really it's a guesstimate number. It's not a concrete number, it's um, like you say, LD50 based on what uh, a certain percentage of the population will react and not react. But even with quantitative risk assessment and when you establish a dose response, you can't say that anybody who has been exposed to a lower dose will not get sick. Um, peanuts are a good example. They they use risk assessment to know how many aflatoxins are allowed in peanuts. But that doesn't mean anybody who's exposed to less than that will not get ill, because we know there are people out there that their immune system um, peanuts can kill them.
2: Right. Well, that's that's good. I'm glad we clarified that you're not you're not denying that these studies have use and that they are. Um, They're actually um, useful studies that have, you know, valid science behind them. But what you're saying is in this particular case with the ACOEM study, it was only based on one study, and it really wasn't even based on the answer or the findings of that study, but it was extrapolated from that study. Is that somewhat accurate? That's
4: somewhat accurate. The rodent study itself is not the problem. It was the extrapolations from uh, rodents to humans that was um, misapplied. Um, so it's not the rodent study; it's the math that was added to the rodent study to conclude the implausibility of human illness. They um, they took I'm, they took one mycotoxin from one mold and they um, they actually they took one mold and um, uh, supposed what the amount of mycotoxins are in that mold, and then from that they extrapolated out and said um, you could never reach a threshold level in, in an indoor environment that could cause illness in people. And the, 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 um, these extrapolations, it's never been duplicated, never. And it's been thrown out of court. There was a, a, a case the Herald case in Sacramento um, in uh, 2006, where the judge made the ruling that they took a... I have it here in front of me. Basically, he said they took an assumption based upon an assumption, based upon an assumption, and concluded uh, that human illness does not occur. So it's, it's not, I, I, you know, I'm not a scientist, and it doesn't take a scientist to understand this. It's, it's very simple math. If A plus B equals C, and A and or B are always a variable number, then C will always be a variable number. And that's why you can't establish a concrete number for dose response on this. There are too many variables between A and B. Does that make sense?
2: Yes, it does. I, I, we, typically we have our uh, technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil on, but he told me to tell the listeners today that uh, he was out, making money so uh, he wasn't here so I did call him before the show just because I don't claim to be a a scientist either and I wanted to get his opinion and um, I wanted to verify with him that most of these chemical studies that occur you're only taking one chemical at a time and exposing this animal whether it be a mouse or a rat to that one chemical and isn't another part of your concern with stating that there is no, you know, there are no health effects um, in the indoor environment from mold, that there are multiple, not only chemicals, but multiple other uh, exposures that are a part of being in a damp environment.
4: That's correct. Yes, okay. people are being exposed to um, bacteria, mycotoxins, endotoxins, MVOCs, um and and there's a lot of bad things that go on in a water-damaged building that are not healthy for humans.
2: And and it's very difficult to do studies on multiple exposures and the synergistic effect, and I think that's part of the problem. Cliff, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, I I
3: think what it flows down to, you touched on a very important point, that we know that moisture stimulates odors. We know that it increases dust mite populations. We know that it increases off-gassing of chemicals. We know it increases bacterial amplification, et cetera. And, you know, would you agree that because fungi amplify after water damage that bacteria, dust mites, material emissions particulate should be looked at as closely as mold is looked at? I mean, we don't see anywhere in the media any concentration of information, discussion, et cetera on any of these other indoor contaminants, it's just focused on mold, mold, mold. And I, you know, I'm not saying that people aren't getting sick. And I just somehow think that they don't necessarily know why they're getting sick. And I'm sick. There's mold in the environment. Therefore, mold makes me sick. And they do this self-diagnosis, and then, you know, can you comment on that?
4: Yeah, it's you have to tease it out. Um, you know, um, when you're in a – it's just like food allergies. Um, you have to add, add and delete, and, and it's an investigative process to determine. First of all, you have to determine, is your environment that you're in making you sick? And the way that people do that is they leave for a while, they come back, they, um, you know, you add and, and delete things from your environment until you tease out exactly what it is that's making you sick.
3: But do you think mold is more toxic than these other indoor contaminants
4: um, you know I'm not really a scientist to be able to answer that question, and I really haven't done any kind of research on dust mites and cockroaches and so i i you know I, I can't really answer that but i I do know you know molds are known to produce toxins and and these toxins some of them are known to cause a neurocognitive effects and um, and I'm, I'm not aware that cockroaches and dust mites are known to uh, cause these types of symptoms
3: well certainly they're known to cause allergic symptoms I'm not a medical yes. professional either but you know we certainly know that bacteria can produce endotoxins and you know they're pretty nasty as right. well so I right. guess the whole, whole I don't
4: know are our endotoxins do they cause neurocognitive problems I'm not I'm not uh, well versed on that to know the answer.
3: We, we know that they can cause or have been implicated in causing some pretty serious health effects. I'm not necessarily sure whether their cause and effect deals with uh, you know one's brain, but certainly deals with other body parts.
2: Right. Well, Sharon, well, but let me
3: just get into the meat of um, your
2: your problem with the ACOEM and what was incorrect or misleading about that, that last sentence that they had in there. Let me, I think you mentioned it. Let me read it right from here. Current scientific evidence does not support the proposition that human health has been adversely affected by inhaled mycotoxins in the home, school, or office environment. Are you saying that they're just being too definitive there? There really isn't enough evidence to make that definitive of a statement?
4: No, that's not the uh, primary spin sentence in the document. The primary spin sentence in the document is, levels of exposure in the indoor environment, dose response data in animals, and dose rate considerations suggest that delivery by the inhalation route of a toxic dose of mycotoxins in the indoor environment is highly unlikely at best, even for the hypothetically most vulnerable of subpopulations. That, that the, the, the ending sentence is, you know, it's, it's, um, that's really not that far off. This is the spin sentence in the document. They've, they've said that they were able to look at rodent studies, look at dose response data, look at dose rate considerations, and conclude that humans could not be exposed to enough uh, toxins of mold within an indoor environment to cause illness, and that's not science. It's uh, never been duplicated.
2: I was I was under the wrong. I was looking at the wrong sentence. Now you've got me straightened out on that. But okay. if, if I'm
3: not mistaken, the sentence before that says, "Except for persons with severely impaired immune systems, indoor mold is not a source of fungal infections." Would you disagree with that?
4: Well, no. But now you're talking about two different things. You're talking about mold and infections, okay. and what we're talking about is toxicity from the mold toxins.
3: Okay, you're talking about toxicity from mycotoxins, okay. Right. Right. So it's
4: two different different things. People do have, it's acknowledged that um, people who are immunocompromised are more likely to become ill from the mold itself, but what is not acknowledged is that the toxins of mold found within an indoor environment can cause human illness, and that's false. It's never been scientifically proven, and the only thing that has even uh, really promoted this concept is this the extrapolations applied to the rodent data by ACOM. And then they accepted it. What happened, they did this. This is, I'm sorry, but it's garbage. What they did, they did this, and then by the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, um, accepting this as a position statement, it added credibility to to this finding, this false finding, and and so you have false science, but you have a medical association that legitimized it. And um, if people don't know what the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine is, it's a trade organization made up of occupational physicians and and some environmental physicians, too. And by the way, I want to say right here, there are many great members in all of these medical associations that, I'm, that are involved in this, and they're working very hard from the inside to clean things up. But there, there have been some shenanigans going on over this issue. Um, so anyhow, um, ACOM occupational physicians occupational medicine is the most conflicted field of medicine out there to begin with because they serve two masters they they work for industry to um like try to uh reduce risk for employers and um you know make things safe in the work environment but at the same time they serve the employees who are being harmed so there's always it's it's long been known to be a very conflicted field of medicine.
3: What is wrong with experts, you know, physicians or expert witnesses researching, writing about, and testifying about science and theory and opinion that they feel passionately about?
4: Well, there would be nothing wrong with that, that um, as long as what they're researching and what they feel passionate about is based on true science and is not just the marketing of a false concept in order to limit financial liability.
2: Let me, let me ask, Sharon, we've, we've focused on the ACOEM statement quite a bit here. Now, has the Institute of Medicine's damp indoor spaces and health, has the, the publication of that document helped your cause?
4: Yes, it has. Um, it, the, it, it's perfectly acceptable science to say we don't know everything, um, much more research is needed, but it's not acceptable science to say we took a rat study, added some math, and people aren't sick. So the IOM report um, directly states that what ACOM did is not science. You can't... Um, I I just read for you about how you can't use toxicological studies by themselves uh, to draw conclusions about human health effects, and that's directly from the executive summary
2: of the IOM. Now, from your experience, and I know you, you work with a lot of people who are going through trying to straighten out their lives from whatever health problem was caused by this damp environment, let us say. From your experience, has the release of damp indoor spaces and help helped to uh, make the road a little easier for them to to help help them along with their cause and with their cases.
4: Not really. Um because the IOM report uh, it, it it's people are up against some pretty heavy marketing and um the IOM report most physicians don't know to go in there and read it and the physicians are being told through the medical associations that um, serious mold illnesses do not occur from exposure in an indoor environment. It's not just ACOM that's involved in this.
3: Um, Sharon, how could someone who is ill mm-hmm. and feels that you know, perhaps fungi is, is the cause of their illness, how could they ensure that their physician would be aware of the potential health effects of indoor fungal exposure?
4: Right now, they um, they really can't. I mean, some of the physicians are becoming educated on their own, but by and large, most of these physicians are being told mold does not cause serious illness. So it's very difficult for people to get medical treatment when, they, when they're sick with these illnesses. There's um, a handful of doctors, I would say, around the country that know and acknowledge these serious illnesses and know how to treat it. And that's one of the tragedies of this situation. The the promotion of misinformation, that people don't become seriously ill, keeps the doctors ignorant. And when the doctors are ignorant, they don't know how to treat. And if they don't know how to treat, these people's illnesses are becoming more severe uh, than, than need be. So the promotion of this misinformation has not only been used as an effective tool in litigation, it's actually causing people to become sicker than they should because they're not able to get proper medical treatment early on.
3: Are you aware of a document, I think it was put out perhaps by the University of Connecticut, you know, directed towards uh, physicians? I think it's this guidance of, you know, for clinicians on the recognition and management of health effects related to mold exposure and moisture indoors. Do you think that would be of assistance to physicians?
4: I think that is of assistance. I think that, um, you know, it's not the end-all be-all on here's how you treat these, but it's an excellent document to acknowledge that people are becoming sick from mold, and that's the first thing that has to be changed. You ask how can people uh, get their physicians to understand this? The way that it's going to have to come is it's going to have to be a change in the national medical understanding for physicians that people are sick. And documents like the um, the UConn Guidance for Clinicians is, um, is, is an excellent document to help change the concept.
2: Okay, Sharon, at this point generally in the show we take a, a little break and we're going to go to the IE Connections What's News segment and then we'll come back to you for the second half of the show and then we'll uh, pull everybody back together at the end of the show here. We've got a nice group of listeners thanks for being patient with us uh... and we don't have any music for mr. fellman this week but let's see if we can unmute glenn Feldman for the eye connections what's news hello glenn
0: hello i, I could sing something if you wanted
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh... no that's okay glenn that's uh... well
0: good choice good choice
2: <laughs> so what's news mr fellman how are you
0: i'm doing great and i just want to say uh... uh to sharon kramer uh... you are a crusader and uh, you are, uh, you've are you got the white hat on, and I support you 100%. Uh, for people who are really interested in, in, in uh, the trials and tribulations she's gone through and the amazing things she's discovered, I'd really encourage you to dig into it. It's, uh, it's very compelling, um, very, very interesting this stuff.
2: By the way, we should mention, Glenn, I don't recall what edition it was, but you had a tremendous article in IE Connections that was... Uh written uh, about Sharon's cause.
0: Yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head which issue it was. It was, it was, it was within the last year or so, and, and it, it's all archived at ieconnections.com, so people can go in there and they can pull that up. And, uh, and if you can't find it, then uh, let me know, and I'd be happy to help you find it.
2: Uh, I'll help you out. It was November 2006. I just found it. There you go. Breaking the mold. Kramer versus corruption by <laughs> Carl Grimes. <laughs> Good job, Glenn. All right, what's news?
0: Well, we've done something very interesting and a little bit unique for us. Uh, what what we've been working really hard on over the last two months is an IEQ presidential political primer for 2008. John Miller, the editor of Indoor Environment Connections and assisted by Deanna Thomas on my staff, has tried to get a policy statement or some kind of a statement out of every uh, major and a lot of the minor contenders from the Democratic and Republican presidential candidates to find out where they stand on indoor environmental issues. Um, interestingly, when you call up and you ask about indoor environmental issues, you you often don't get a return phone call. It's remarkable how many of the candidates really didn't even respond. So uh, as a sort of a plan B, what John and uh, Deanna did is they reviewed relevant policy and legislative actions of each of the candidates um, there's a, a sidebar article in this coming issue that shows the sixteen different uh... things that they looked at uh... things like the combat meth act of two thousand five the ban asbestos in america act of two thousand seven the family asthma act of two thousand seven uh, several like that um, having to do with all sorts of issues about indoor environment lead, radon and so forth we um... We, we did this, uh, I should say, John and Deanna did this in a very impartial manner. They just reviewed the voting records and the policy statements of these different candidates, and they wanted to see if, if uh, you know, one emerged as being more pro-IEQ than all of the others. Now, I want to caveat this by saying that we're a fairly conservative group of people up here in my office, despite being an environmental publication. Uh, I, I would say that there's probably more people who vote on the Republican ticket than the Democrat in my office. And so um, this, this came with a, a bit of a surprise to John Miller, but John's endorsement for the IEQ endorsement for the presidential, uh, upcoming presidential race is none other than Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's record on indoor environmental issues is far and away better than that of any other candidate in the race, Democrat or Republican. Um, energy efficiency has been a big focus of hers. Uh, she's um, She has stated her goal of reducing electricity consumption by 20% by 2020. Um, she has uh, co-sponsored the High Performance and Green Buildings Act in 2006, which was later added into the Energy Act. And she introduced in 2005 the, home said, uh, the Home-Led Safety Tax Credit Act and a host of other uh, indoor environmental related uh, policies and 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 laws that uh, improve people 's health and well being so sh- Hillary Clinton is the uh, editor selection endorsement this year for the uh, presidency
2: i think that's cliff's favorite candidate there
0: yeah <laughs> well, you know some of the candidates came out really really poorly in this and um i know that people vote on a a wide range of issues and indoor quality For most people, isn't one of the issues they really consider when selecting a presidential candidate. And I know that there's a lot of other issues out there that are equally or more important. But for those who are listening to this show or who are readers of our paper, it is an issue. And so it is interesting when you're trying to decide who you might vote for in a primary or in the presidential elections next November uh, to think about their indoor air quality stance and how their presidency might affect your future. And I bring that up because. Right now we're looking at a situation where we've got Congressman John Conyers, and uh, this is by the way the front page story of our January issue. Conyers is reintroducing some, uh, again, uh, he's done it every year since 2002, the Federal uh, Toxic uh, Mold Safety and Protection Act. And of course it's it's fallen flat every year and it's received fewer and fewer sponsors every year. But if we were to look at a situation where in 2008 we could have a Democrat elected to the presidency, and if the Democrats can uh, gain a stronger foothold in Congress and really control things in Washington, it is very, very conceivable that you could see a toxic mold safety and protection act introduced perhaps in 2009 that would actually gain traction. And uh, there's a lot of what-ifs in that, but it's something that I'm going to watch very, very carefully because I view these next, uh, whatever it is, eight or nine months as being very critical towards some of the things that might happen in our industry over the next, say, four to five years.
2: We'll have to get a little more information from our guest on that because I know she's been very involved with with. Representative Conyers and some of the other activities on Capitol Hill. That's part of the second half. I'm just curious, Glenn, can you tell us who scored highest on the Republican side?
0: Um, you know, there really wasn't a, 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 a clear front-runner on the Republican side. Um, they, they all sort of fell back. Now, uh, New York um, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani um, comes out a little bit stronger in some cases because of the fact that um, he's proposed and been a, involved in a lot of um, actions related to 9/11 that are, are geared towards um, uh, environmental issues and so forth. So he comes out a little bit stronger in that way. But none of the Republicans really have indoor air quality high on their list. Uh, none of the none of the front runners, at least in the uh, the campaign here. So um, I really can't say there's a leader in that we would say that uh, that you know uh, a, a, a far second to clinton was obama in the overall candidates
3: are you aware that Rudy is involved, Giuliani is involved in a company called Sabre Technologies?
0: Absolutely, yep. Okay,
3: all right. So he's my kind of guy He's into pumping chlorine
0: <laughs> dioxide <laughs> gas
3: in the building. But so he's kind of like my candidate. you got to have a pro-chemical candidate. I suspect it might be Rudy. But in any event, uh,
2: that's why we get along. So- no, actually, it's like Hannity and Coles here. I don't know. Uh, before I let you go, Glenn, there was a – there was a question from a listener and Sharon you brought them out this week um, and I think maybe I'd rather pose this to the executive director of the IAQA QA. as opposed to trying to answer it myself
0: are you making me change my hat
2: uh, yeah. yeah change your hat for a minute please okay. um, how can you know we were talking about educating physicians and uh, a question came in from Chuck Rainey that said could the IAQA play a role?
0: Well first of all hey Chuck Chuck's a friend of mine. Um, Yeah, as a matter of fact, this year, uh, IAQA has launched a a great new initiative to bring information to the medical community, and it's happening in a couple different fronts. For the first time ever, uh, the association is participating in uh, the meetings of the medical community. We were out with um, a meeting of allergists and immunologists uh, last month, and this month we're going to be meeting with uh, uh, the Association of of Holistic Medical medical practitioners, and there's uh, two or three other related types of uh, shows for allergists and immunologists that we're going to be exhibiting at this year and possibly having some speaking opportunities for our members at this year. Beyond that, there's some interesting things happening, some developments that are are, uh, just happening, but with some of our chapters where they're making inroads with their uh, state American Lung Associations and uh, regional lung associations. So there is a lot more of that that's just begun and um, it's an opportunity for the Indoor Air Quality Association and other indoor environmental groups to help the medical uh, community really understand the factors within a home that are contributing to the health or the poor health of their patients.
2: Great. Thanks for that, Glenn. And can we bring you back for the roundup here? We won't have any music, but uh, maybe you can sing us another song.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll get my lasso out and practice my roundup singing and, and bring me back in.
2: Thanks, Glenn. All right. We'll bring you right back. Hello, Sharon. Hello. All right, we've got you back. Sharon, Glenn kind of segued into the uh the Conyers bill. I'm I'm curious. I know you've worked with him, uh, or at least to some degree. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the legislative activities you've been uh, involved with on, on the Hill? Uh
4: yes. Um there um through Senator Kennedy's Health, Education, Labor and Pension Committee, um there's currently a federal government accountability office audit into this issue. And um, so they're teasing through, you know, how multifaceted this issue is. They're teasing through all the government agencies and um, looking at the private sector medical communities that we've outsourced control of environmental medicine to. And um, once the GAO audit is done, um, and this comes to light – Congressman Conyers is going to be redoing that bill. And, um, you know, it's. I don't know if you've ever seen the Molina bill. It's very large and it's multifaceted. and it would have to go through several committees to get passed. And I think that's one reason why they have difficulty getting uh, endorsers to sign on to it. So once everything's done, we're going to break them down into smaller segments of the bill um, so that each aspect can more easily be passed. And I would think that that will be happening um, sometime towards the end of this year.
3: You know, speaking about government officials, politicians, it seems that somehow they feel they're more vulnerable to mold than the general population. Comment <laughs> on that for us.
4: I think you're probably referring to a spoof I did on a uh, on a kind of a tongue-in-cheek satire. Is that what you're referring to for unconfirmed sources that uh, – but mold is only harmful for government officials. Right, yes. right. <laughs> yeah. Um it's uh, it's just there's so many things that are bizarre about these issues, about this issue that doesn't even fit science. Like, for instance, when Katrina hit, uh, Governor Kathleen Blanco was out of the governor's mansion, and um, they spent eight hundred thousand dollars to renovate it. Five hundred thousand of it was for mold removal, but at the same time, while she was not living in the mansion, people in New Orleans were being told it's okay, you can go back, you're fine, um, and there have been a number of uh governor man governor's mansions and um um just uh, you know another in uh, march of 2005 uh Brian Brown of uh, the consumer protection division for the Kansas state attorney general Phil Klein he bought a house from Kansas Republican Party chairman Tim um Schlauenberger, I think that's how you say it right right and um and he sued him because the house had mold and his children were very sick but at the same time Brian Brown uh, has not taken any stance or done anything for the average citizens of Kansas who are claiming they're sick from mold so there appears to be a double standard if you are a um, if you're a government official mold can make you and your family sick but your constituents just presume they're sick
3: I think one of the most serious cases is the situation with this Florida judge, which I suspect that you're aware of as well, where they're, um, you know, where there's actually an alleged fatality and the family's going back after the, uh, you know, trying to sue the building and so on and so forth.
4: Right. and And it sounds to me like he actually... Um, inhaled fungus in his lungs and got an infection is what that sounds like i'll tell you what i think is the most serious mold situation in the united states it's the air traffic controllers Um, detroit is a primary example there are like i think it's 17 of them that are saying they're sick from mold and they're not the building's not being cleaned up properly and they're 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 practically screaming for help. They're saying they're having neurocognitive difficulties. They're on record as making more errors than, than any other air traffic um, controllers anywhere in the United States. And so, I mean, it's just inconceivable to me that these people are not getting help. And it, it, they're controlling uh, everybody's lives who are in an airplane flying in and out of Detroit. And, you know, just a blind eye turned to the matter.
3: You know, I suspect that you get hundreds or thousands of contacts from people via the Internet, uh, you know, people that are, you know, interested in in this advocacy work that you do. Have you ever encountered an alleged mold victim whose symptoms you felt were psychosomatic or have you ever encountered an alleged mold victim whose motivations you felt were questionable or have you ever encountered someone whom you felt was trying to, you know, pin their Bad financial situation or their bad health situation on fungal exposure mm, th-
4: those are three different questions really but um, no uh, no I haven't really come across anybody who I think that you know that they feel mold has made them ill, that are just having psychological problems um, i have <laughs> I've talked to quite a few mold victims who are having psychological difficulty, but it's physiological in origin. And, um, and you know, I, I've talked to enough of them that you can tell. There's a speech pattern to the way they talk, and they, they, they can't stay focused on a point of what they're trying to tell you. If you let a, a mold victim who's at their sickest just go and talk, they'll talk to you for three hours, and they'll tell you about their uncle's cat that died in 1964 while they're trying to explain to you that they're sick from mold. So when I talk to these people, I, I typically tell them right up front, um, you know you're nutty right now, right? You're not staying focused. Do you understand that? And just for me to say that to them, they're like, oh, thank you. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and, um, and so when I'm talking to these people, I, I tell them, okay, if you get off, if you get off target of what you're discussing, I'm going to shut you down and take you back on focus. And they say, okay, that's great. And see, that's something that's very difficult for the physicians too. When they're faced with these people, they do look nutty sometimes. They can't stay on track. And so a physician is looking at a person who's nutty, um, trying to explain to them they're sick from mold, and it's, it's very difficult for the the doctors to understand too that. It's not psychological, it's physiological.
3: I think that you have a special knack for doing this because you experienced it yourself and the fact that your family experienced it and I think it's always easier to relate to something when you've had a personal experience with it. And
4: uh That's true, but I you know, I have to tell you, I am not the person who typically Deals with the mold victims that are at their worst, um, there's some a lot of unsung heroes in this issue that have dedicated years to this, and they they have the patience to deal with these people and hold their hands when no physician will acknowledge them and take them through and um, you know if I had to name. One person who is just a saint over this issue and has listened to people over and over and over again, it would be Kevin Carstens who runs, who moderates the website of Sick Buildings. He has 2,000 members on that board, and he'll deal with them through the Internet some. But Kevin will take calls and, you know, midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, he'll listen to people when nobody else will.
3: We should probably try to get him as a guest uh, on the show. You
4: should. He is so knowledgeable about um, what people are experiencing besides just the ill health effects, how it impacts every aspect of their life.
3: Sharon, is this a worldwide problem, or is the American population more susceptible to mold?
4: I think it's more prevalent. I mean, you know, I can't say that for certain, but just my thought of this is I think it's more prevalent in the United States because of our construction standards. We went into uh, trying to build more um, energy efficient starting in like the late 70s, early 80s, and we started using um, more man-made materials that easily wick water, like, you know, um, particle board and um, uh, what is it? What's it called sheetrock with paper on it that just wick water so um I, I think it's more prevalent in the United States, but I also think the awareness is um uh, more prevalent here too so i you know I, I i don't really know um what it's like in Europe other than I know that they they there's a lot of old buildings that in the seventeen hundreds they built buildings um with pockets between the walls to let air flow through, I think I think we've forgotten a lot of things that we should know about construction.
2: Karen, I want to get back for a moment on the uh, the federal issues you're working on and and, and the gaO and the um, audit that you're trying to put together. What uh first of all I, I noticed in an email that you sent me there were a string of people like Ted Kennedy and uh Representative Conyers and then Henry Waxman, who were all Democrats. Are you getting any support or are you finding any support whatsoever from the Republican side? That was my question. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well I was. Um uh, you know, Mississippi is my home state, and uh, Senator Lott's office. <laughs> hey, good. <laughs> okay.
2: Close <good. laughs> so friend, although he's re- he's retiring, isn't he? Right, right. Yeah,
4: I think he's retiring.
2: Right, right. So, do you have you? Is that the only um, Republican that you can mention that has been helpful at all on the issue, or are there some others that have listened at least?
4: Um, that not that I'm aware, there has not been. I'm sure there there are some Republican. Um, uh, congressmen and senators, but not that I have been directly in contact with, besides Senator lott
2: Now, how have you been advocating with, uh, have you been working directly with Representative Conyers' office and staff uh, or another office?
4: Um, it would be Conyers' office that would be doing, be doing a new bill when it comes about. Um, it's Senator Kennedy's help staff that initiated the GAO audit, and they're the, they're the first ones that um, really listened that there was something going on here. And then, of course, um, Congressman Waxman's office is um, oversight and government reform. So they would be looking at what government agencies um, have erroneously promoted this false concept of ACOM.
2: Sharon, before uh, we're we're running a little short, and I want to bring Glenn back, but before we do, I've got a couple quick ones. One is, do you ever testify as an expert witness, consult, or otherwise receive compensation for your advocacy?
4: No, I have not. I've had, um, um, when I've been to Washington, D.C., I have had just twice had my apartment paid for while I was there. But no, other than that, I... um, I've spent tens of thousands of dollars from my own pocket to move this issue forward.
2: And how can a home buyer who's listening or a property owner, what, what is the best way for them to protect themselves from purchasing a property that may have this type of fungal contamination you ran into?
4: The best way to do that is to ask a lot of questions, and that's not just to protect the home buyer. That's to protect the home seller too. The um, you know if you're if you're buying a new property, you should ask questions like: Has there ever been any water damage in the property? Are you aware of any mold? Have you done any remediation? Um, what have you done for remediation? Um, and, and it protects the seller, too, when you ask those questions. One can never disclose enough in a real estate transaction to um, to, to uh, protect themselves and the buyer. Um, you know, sometimes uh, sellers don't disclose about uh, a leak 15 or 5 years ago because they don't realize that it's relevant. And then when the new buyer moves in and they find mold growing and the, the seller... Um, gets in trouble, too, because the buyer thinks they didn't disclose. So um, the the number one thing to protect buyers and sellers in a real estate transaction is disclose, disclose, disclose.
2: And do you mind discussing real quickly uh, the fact that, you know, you had a home that had a problem, you had it, the insurance company came in to, they brought in someone or recommended someone to remediate it, it wasn't remediated properly, and then you had to leave the home. Um, Now what?
4: Well, yeah, yeah, we had a leak in an ice maker line, and um, we were sent remediators and um, a lab that really didn't know what they were doing, and they cross contaminated the house and um my daughter has cystic fibrosis and she also has allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis and after they finished the remediation the testing showed that the indoor mold spore count was higher than it was before the remediation so it was a situation where she she already she had experienced a code blue um when she was younger and it was a situation where we couldn't tell if the house would ever be safe for us again or not. And there were so many experts with so many different opinions. Um, it just wasn't worth the risk to us to understand whether the house was, would be safe for us again or not. And we just walked away. And, you know, our daughter's life was worth a lot more than finding out whether that house would ever be safe again or not.
2: Karen, before we go to the roundup, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add?
4: Yes, there is. I want to go back to the ACOM paper, how they it was it was garbage science, it was legitimized by ACOM, but what happened after that was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce promoted this garbage to stakeholder industries. They had a fanfare presentation on July 17, thousand and three. It went out to the building the insurance, the uh, mortgage, and the real estate industries that mold toxins don't cause this serious illness. And what this has caused by marketing that concept is contention right from the get-go. So when somebody is sick within a, a, a property and they claim they're sick, the owner of the property thinks that these people are just liars trying to get into their pocket and the sick person can't understand why the owner is being so nasty to them. So the what they've done is they tried to shut down the lawsuits by promoting this garbage, but what they've really done is they've added contention to the issue right from the get go. And the sick don't get help and the the property owners are distrusting and and it's rather than shut down the lawsuits, what it's done is it's increased the contention. This issue should be nothing more than a mold hill if the physicians were trained to treat early and if property owners knew how important it was to take care of this, that, yes, their tenants can get sick, that in itself would take care of much of this issue.
3: Sharon, how would you prefer our listeners contact you?
4: Um, I think I accidentally announced my cell phone over the airwave before we started. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, people can... Call me on my cell phone, um, which is 760 822 8026, or they can contact me by email. My email address is snk1955 at aol.com.
3: How can our listeners support you if they were inclined in your ongoing advocacy?
4: Um, Well, it just depends on what what their background is and what, what area they work within and what they understand. They're, and it's not just me. There are hundreds of us out here that are working together on this. And it, so it just depends on what somebody's background is, what, what, what area they can be of benefit.
3: What happens um, if they wanted to um, help you financially? Could they do that?
4: Well, financially, you know, I'm, I'm currently in litigation with the um, – the authors of the ACOM Mold Statement, for they, I wrote five little words in a press release, altered his under oath statements, and um, oddly they've not sued me for anything I've said about their science, but those five little words, and um, it's costing my family tremendously to defend me against this, and there's a website, um, moldwarriors.com, that um uh, Dr. Shoemaker and some of the other physicians have set up to try and help me, and there, there, there is a defense fund information on that site.
3: Would you repeat it again? It's at
4: moldwarriors.com.
3: Moldwarriors.com.
2: Yes. Thank you for asking that question. No, no problem. No problem, Sharon. Let's bring Glenn Feldman back in, do the roundup, and uh, hello, Glenn. Hello. Anything uh, you wanted
0: to add, Glenn? You just did it. I was, uh, you know, Sharon. I have the most utmost respect for you, and especially the fact that, that that you didn't didn't raise this issue during this interview. But I think it's a very important interview uh, aspect of what's going on here. Um, you know, and when you, when you look at the world of uh, you know big corporations and uh, you know very powerful entities who can sort of squash the little guy or little gal in this case. Um, you know, and you want to make a difference, you can. And the website that was put up uh, to create a legal defense fund to help Sharon and her efforts, it's moldwarriors.com slash SK for Sharon Kramer. And Dr. Shoemaker and some of the other physicians um, did this to, to support Sharon because they believe in her, they believe in her cause and what she's trying to do, they know she's right, and... Um, people like Carl Grimes have helped us spread the word about it, and I hope your listeners will, will do the research on this issue, uh, read the information that's available, come to their own conclusions, and when you do that, I think you'll be compelled to go to moldwarriors.com SK and maybe give a little for what I consider to be a very good cause.
2: Thank you, Glenn. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we go?
0: Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that, you know, uh, for every Sharon Kramer who who's out there fighting the good fight, uh, I just it, 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 it brings me to my knees to think of how many thousands and thousands and thousands of other people out there who were probably in a somewhat similar situation who lost their homes, who lost their lives and their money and had to start over and who um, didn't have the moxie to get into. Uh, this kind of a battle and do this kind of research and fight for their rights. So, Sharon, keep it up, and if there's things that we can do to help you, let us know.
3: Thank you, Glenn. There's actually something that Sharon, you, or Glenn could do to help Joe and I. You've <laughs> got to get Dr. Shoemaker to return his email. We've been trying <laughs> to get him on the show, and uh, no one they seem to ignore our calls. So if either or both of you could put the word out to him that we'd like to have him on the show, uh, I think it would be beneficial to our
0: listeners. It's a deal. I'll, I'll put in my two cents. Thank you very much, Glenn.
2: Thank you. And thank you, Sharon, for joining us this week. I also want to thank my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, the wingman, Chris Boizel, our technical director who couldn't be here this week, but he's still here in spirit, Dr. Dietrich Weil, of course, our sponsors, and most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, Please uh, come back again next week for the next edition of IAQ Radio.
3: This has been another IAQ Radio production.